Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Your business may be small, but you've got big goals. Brother Laser Printers can help you succeed, no matter the space, task, or budget. From crisp black and white to vivid full color, our printers offer affordable quality you can trust. Plus, fast printing and high page yields make them ideal for home offices and shared workspaces. It's no wonder Brother is the number one retail brand in laser printer unit sales in the U.S. With Brother at your side, go from small to do it all. Shop now at brother-usa.com slash laser. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of May 13th, 2019, as the Chicago White Sox wrap up their seven-game road trip. Exactly how they started it. After winning the first two games at Cleveland, they proceeded to lose the next two games of the series at Cleveland and lost the first game in Toronto. But they end up winning games two and three to finish four and three. That's right. The White Sox had a winning road trip. Please do not ask me when was the last time that happened because it feels it's been a long time and I didn't want to go through some really bad moments of road trips for the White Sox. However, the White Sox are 18-21 and it just so happens to be a year ago on this show, I had the title of the podcast called Rock Bottom, which I explained on how the rebuild and the organization had reached its lowest point. In the first 39 games in 2018, the White Sox were 10-29. And so far, we've seen an eight-game improvement, and based on expected winning percentage by runs allowed and runs scored, the 2019 White Sox are projected to score 756 runs while allowing 860 runs in 2019. That comes out to a projected winning percentage of 436, which would be 71 and 91, right where we predicted at the beginning of the season. And who's leading the way for the White Sox? Jose Abreu, Yohan Makata, Tim Anderson, Lucas Giolito, and James McCann? Is this the diamond in the rough that we've been talking about the White Sox need to discover in the rebuild like the Cubs did with Jake Arrieta? 
someone to come out of nowhere and be a key part in the White Sox transition from rebuilder to contender? Okay, maybe it's a bit too soon for that conversation, but what are we witnessing here with James McCann? Well, joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Should we start the James McCann All-Star campaign? May as well. Uh, to answer the question you brought up, um, in late August last year, uh, they did win five of seven on a road trip to Detroit and Yankee Stadium. Uh, so it's been a few months since a winning road trip, but that's that would be the last one. So there's that in case anybody was wondering. But yeah, no, McCann has been uh, quite a revelation. And uh, the, I think the the play that he made in Toronto where he covered third base on a shift and ended up, was it four... Uh, fourth, four, two, three, yeah, four, four, two, three, four. Yeah, that was no four, I'm three, sorry, two, four, four, three, yes. two, four. Because yeah. I went to yeah, four, second to first to third. Yeah, what McCann was covering third. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a really heady play, <laughs> and that was, uh, maybe it's more speaking poorly of Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s foot speed, but the way he ran him down towards second, he might have been able to handle the rundown entirely by himself. Uh, which would have been even, I'm not sure what would, would have been stranger, a 4-3-2-4, uh, a 4-3-2 double play. Maybe, maybe the 4 makes it weird, but yeah, it was just the way he handled that, I think, was, might have been like the peak of his season in, in, a, in a season that's had a lot of, uh, a surprisingly high amount of up moments. Can you imagine if Hawk Harrelson was still calling games? We would be hearing about that play for the rest of the season. Yeah, and I guess deservedly so, given the uh, history of White Sox catchers in recent uh, memory, <laughs> and especially yeah. uh, with Wellington Cast. I think uh, you know part of McCann is Wellington and Castillo is really making him look good too, because every time McCann starts, it seems like uh, uh, it just throws it to even starker relief. Yeah, we'll talk about Wellington Castillo here, as we're going to have a lot of conversation about James McCann at the beginning of the show here. And one of our friends, all the way from Germany... Chris emailed us a question, Jim, and he is asking, were we all wrong on James McCann? And he added a side comment. I actually always liked him, but I thought Wellington Castillo was a great signing too, which says a lot about my scouting. Chris, I, I would say before the year that I think almost everyone on this planet would say that Wellington Castillo was a better catcher than James McCann. And the reason is that James McCann last year offensively using weighted runs created plus was 58. So he's 42% worse than league average offensively. The defensive metrics, no matter which one you want to use as far as, especially with pitch framing, were definitely well below league average. This was a bad catcher that was on a bad team that gave up on him, even though they had control for the next two years. Uh, Detroit just simply let him go, even though he was still under arbitration. And my feeling, Jim, to answer Chris, Chris's question, were we all Ron and James McCann? This is the best he's ever looked. And there was no evidence of McCann being this type of player. However, do you see something or have you seen something different from McCann, possibly maybe all the way from spring training, to suggest that he would have this type of start? Well, part of it is... A lot of luck. Uh, just with ground balls, they seem to find every hole up the middle, left side. Uh, flares are falling. Uh, he's hit the ball hard, too. Uh, he's, uh, I guess his hard hit rate is higher than it's ever been, especially in the StatCast era. Um, he's lifting the ball about as much as he usually does, but he also has been 
using the opposite field really well. So he seems to be spraying hits around. He's hard to shift against. They've been playing him straight up, and he's found holes in that, uh, but not in any kind of predictable way. So it seems like it is... You know, part of it's unsustainable. You know, the, the grounders that are just getting through, that'll eventually back up on him at some point. But the way he's lifting the ball uh, and and being able to place it in, in different places uh, seems to be something that might be more sustainable. And he's had, you know, seasons where he's been adequate offensively, maybe even a bit above average, double-digit homers and, uh, you know, decent average. And his eye has always been good enough for a catcher uh looking at his chase rates and his uh, swing and miss they're about at his normal averages it just seems like he's uh when he's making contact he's barreling it up a bit better and the ball is coming off his bat a bit stronger and you know it's paying dividends for everybody now looking at Statcast, exit velocity for james mccann he's in the 77th percentile his career exit velocity average jim was 87.4 miles per hour this season it's 90.9 miles per hour so I know you mentioned a little bit about luck, but if you're hitting the ball on average about three to four miles per hour harder, that could help with ball with batting average balls in play. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as his expected batting average, 77th percentile. Expected slugging, 77th percentile. Now back over to the defense. Baseball Savant is now tracking pitch framing and using the pitch FX data and using the stat cast data with the Doppler radar installed at every stadium. They're getting pretty specific on how well catchers are doing with pitch framing, where they're catching pitches in the zone, and whether they're called strikes or balls. James McCann's framing is in the 30th percentile. He is one of the worst pitch framers still. This His strike rate, which is the amount of non-swing strikes caught, so every pitch that the catcher catches, that there wasn't a swing by the hitter, what is the percentage of those pitches caught that end up being a strike? For James McCann, it's 46.7%, which is much better than Wellington Castillo, who's at 45.4%, but both are below league average at 48.5%. If you want to know where the top catchers are, the top catchers are at 51 to 52%. So both of them could be better as far as helping stealing strikes. But I do have a feeling, Jim, when it comes to the pitch framing, some of this could be attributed to the White Sox quality of pitching, uh, especially at the beginning of the year. I mean, if these pitches are nowhere near the strike zone or they're not establishing certain parts of the plate, they're not going to get these calls and both Castillo and McCann are going to get hurt. Uh, But no doubt that McCann's value has been mostly coming from the bat. And I have a feeling, Jim, of deja vu where we've been here before, a possible below-average player all of a sudden comes out of nowhere to have a terrific season. Oh, yes! 2017, Avisil Garcia. Jim, are we going through deja vu? Could McCann possibly going through a 2017 Avi season? Possibly, uh, given just the amount of good fortune that he's hit into, but... I think when it comes to Avi and McCann, and in those cases, he is making his own luck. I mean, he's, his his bats have been good. You know, you can't knock uh, the way he's seeing the ball and that he's giving himself a chance every time up. And sometimes those chances turn up more in a hitter's favor than usual. And I think he's on one of those rolls right now. I think Baseball Prospectus has his pitch framing at just slightly below average, like middle of the pack. Uh, and and that's an improvement over previous years, and Castillo is towards the bottom of that, so I think that's another case where Castillo makes him look better. Uh, but there's, you know, there's a compelling 
catcher package here, especially one who is still in his 20s and is under control for another year after this. It's worth exploring it. Now you mentioned as far as Castillo helping make McCann look better, especially defensively. This has been the question that's been raised by a lot of White Sox fans in the last couple of days on Twitter. And it is, should James McCann be carrying the bulk of the starts moving forward? If you look just based on salary, which we do oftentimes when talking about baseball, that oftentimes the higher paid player at the same position is going to get the majority of starts. Why? Because they're getting paid more than the other guy. But even the salary discrepancy, what is Castillo making again? Eight million this year? Seven and a half, I think. Seven and a half. Million. Something like that. Five million more than James McCann. However, just based on quality of play, should McCann be carrying the bulk of the starts moving forward? I'm fine with the way Renteria has divided it because one of my concerns with McCann, or at least maybe one of the things I saw with his Detroit performance that I thought might make him better than he looked with the White Sox is, you know, every time he was with Detroit, he played 110 plus games, I think. You know, he was definite starter carrying the load. Whether he was hitting well, hitting poorly, framing well, framing poorly, he always played. He didn't get much of a break. And I wondered, you know, maybe if he took that guy and played him in more strategic matchups or, you know, maybe you know, cut his workload down to 80 games, would he be better? You know, we've seen that with Connor Gillespie, you know, somebody who, when you played him, you know, maybe 90 games, uh, selected his starts, you know, more importantly, selected his days off. Uh, and and played him to his strengths and tried to hide his weaknesses, he got a better player. And when you had to make a full-time starter out of him and play him 120, 130 games, he wasn't that good. Uh, and I think with McCann, I guess my hope was that if he had to play him less, if he didn't have to start five out of six games you know, in a in a season or you know, have to go through these uh, stretches where he's facing righties that are tough or playing in you know hot days, catching uh, day games after night games and getting worn down. Maybe you could get a better performance out of him. I think that might be partly uh, the reason he's having such a good run is that he isn't carrying the load uh, as much as he did in Detroit. And I think, you know, at some point, if Castillo keeps playing this poorly, uh, then you have to shift the playing time in McCann's favor the way it was in Detroit. But I think if you can have the, the this kind of arrangement where Castillo plays as much as possible while McCann gets more of the starts or the better pitchers that he works with, uh, you know, that kind of arrangement, then maybe you can get something that benefits both players well enough and you get the best possible version of McCann that you can get. Now that's this year. Looking ahead even further, as I mentioned, McCann is ARB eligible next year. So the White Sox can go into arbitration with James McCann if they want to outside of the one year, two and a half million dollars that they signed him during the off season. I think it's too soon to think of James McCann as the 2020 White Sox starting option. But Jim, as you mentioned, Castillo's not playing well. And down in Charlotte, Sebi Zavala's hurt, even though he's rehabbing right now. But prior to his injury, or maybe because of his injury, he wasn't hitting AAA all that well. And Zach Collins, I know a lot of fans are really happy with his progress, uh, but not to be that guy, but I'm going to be that guy. Zach Collins is hitting 136 against left-handed pitching and striking out 61.5% of the time. He is not hitting left-handed pitching at all in AAA. So when you look at the White Sox catching situation, 
at 2020 and beyond. Uh, does James McCann suddenly become a multiple season solution behind home plate for the White Sox? Well, the way he's playing now seems like there's room for him. I mean, even, you know, not the guy who's hitting uh, 350 and looks like an all-star, but just, you know, say if you give him in, you know, maybe the best ever McCann season, which would be an above average season for a catcher, along with defense that isn't terrible. You know, I know you said 30. Uh, 30th percentile at baseball perspectives calls him middle of the pack. I think, you know, if he's slightly below average, that's better than the White Sox have had in recent years. True. They can work with that. Um, and it buys them some time to see what happens with Zavala, whether it's his wrist injury or just AAA pitching, doing them in. Uh, yeah, I guess really decide what you want to do with Zach Collins. If you bring him up and rotate him between DH and first base and part-time catcher, you know, they're, they're there's some flexibility there, but you know McCann being right-handed uh, can cover Collins's problems with lefties if Collins looks worthy of catching. Um, so there are some ways to mix and match with them, and I think for the time being, uh, given that McCann probably won't have much in the way of trade value, and if you want the White Sox to get better, you know trading McCann just opens up a massive hole behind the plate, and I don't know how you solve that. I mean, you you might not want to press your luck, you know, two years in a row trading a catcher who does something well, even if he has some, uh, I guess, deficiencies that, you know, drag down his value a bit. You traded Omar Narvaez and he's, you know, had a nice season with Seattle so far. I don't know if you want to keep dealing catchers that are halfway decent at something. Yeah, your all-star catchers for the American League, if the game was tomorrow, would be Mitch Garver for the Minnesota Twins, James DeCan of the White Sox, and Omar Narvaez for Seattle. I mean, the White Sox possibly traded an all-star catcher for Alex Colome. And who knows, maybe Colome finds a way to sneak in on the All-Star team. He continues to pitch well in uh, high leverage situations for the White Sox. But I, you know, that that was that was a common question that I got over the weekend. Could the White Sox move James McCann? And you know how I feel about this, Jim, even when we talked about possibly trading Carlos Rodon, which maybe in hindsight I was on the wrong side of that. But at some point, you got to stop trading the players that are performing well, right? You got to hold on to them if you really want to have this team turn the corner and start winning. You're going to need to keep the guys that are red hot. Uh, And another question I've been getting is on the flip side. And that's with Wellington Castillo. I think we're going to address that later in the show in P.O. Sox. Um, but yeah, I can't believe I'm saying this. I know it's only mid-May and things could change. Maybe we're talking about a huge regression and a huge slump a month from now for James McCann. He comes back down to earth. Uh, but the one lesson that I have learned as we have on our sixth season, Jim, is that when players are having this high of a wave, just ride with it. Just enjoy it as long as it lasts. And I'm sure it won't last the entire season, but hey, for 2017, obviously, Garcia... It did last the entire season. So mm-hmm. maybe this is the breakout for James McCann, and maybe this is finally the unexpected breakout that we've been looking for with this White Sox rebuild uh, and somebody that can answer a question at a pivotal position on the team. So that's James McCann. Another player that's been carrying quite a bit of the offensive workload has been Charlie Tilson. And since being called, uh, and actually since I spoke with him when I visited Charlotte, uh, Tilson in seven games with the White Sox is nine for 25 with two doubles and three steals. And uh, he has made a meme that will last for a lifetime <laughs> on Twitter with him falling down in Cleveland. Poor, poor Charlie Tilson. But as he slipped in Toronto, he made a fantastic catch. He redeemed himself 
uh, on Sunday in center field. If you didn't get a chance to see it, he he slipped as he was backing up, but still was able to dive forward and make a terrific catch. Uh, for me, Jim, I think this is the best we've seen from Tilson since he's joined mm-hmm. the organization from 2016. I think the lingered question that I have is, does he have staying power for this season? I think for this season, yes, uh, given that center field is a little bit of a, yeah, Larry Garcia is holding it down, although he just got banged up. But, uh, you know, there isn't a whole lot of depth there unless you want to see Adam Engel come back. They really haven't trusted Ryan Cordell with center. So it seems like there is an avenue for Tilson to play there, even if you know, he may not be uh, an, even an average center fielder. Uh Looking at his his uh, stats, you know, when it comes to you know the batted balls and uh, last year watching him, he just hit a lot of balls on the ground, whether it was Charlotte or or the majors. He had a decent idea what to swing at. Uh, you know, he didn't really chase. He didn't really swing and miss all that much. He just hit a lot of weak contact into the ground, uh, especially like you know we came up with runners in scoring positions. Uh, trying to get a ball over the infield. He couldn't do it. He couldn't get any lift. It was just all tapped to the infield and routine outs and couldn't really do anything with that. And I think now, as you mentioned, the two doubles, he is getting some lift. Uh, he's not going to be somebody who drives the ball. And yeah, I think he gave the ball as far <laughs> a ride as far as he could to uh, Roger Center's left center field and, and came a bit short. He'll look into a homer once in a while, but he's going to be somebody who I think you know, settles for singles and doubles mainly. But he's getting the lift. He's getting the ball over the infield. He's able to poke the ball uh, the other way. He's able to to rip the ball a little bit when the opportunity presents itself. Uh, the the ground ball rate is now down to like fifty eight percent, which was sixty eight percent last year. So that's just you know one out of ten that he's getting more lift on, and that's about where he was with the Cardinals uh, when he looked like a legit prospect there, at least somebody worthy of center field playing time when the White Sox acquired him. So I think if he's a guy who you know carries that decent batting eye to the plate and can, you know, make contact against major league pitching and get the ball in the air. Like he was with St. Louis. That's a guy who can start for a, a, uh, the rest of the year and, and a good use of a rebuilding season. Uh, and I think, you know, anybody who prevents Adam Engel from coming back and playing as much as he did before is worth a look. If Lurie Garcia has to go on the injured list for making a great catch in center field, but I think it's a back issue now. Yeah, lower back stiffness. He has to go on the injured list because Nicky Delmonico also has a sore shoulder. But instead of him making a great catch, <laughs> Delmonico, in his way, great effort, dove for the ball, missed it. Uh, but he has a sore shoulder from that missed catch on, on the dive. Uh, if one of those two have to go on the injured list, is Adam Engel coming up or is somebody else? I guess it depends on whether they think Ryan Cordell can play center. We haven't seen him out there. Uh, if they think he he's somebody who can slide over to center for a game or two, then I think they could probably go to Daniel Palka, who is uh, having, you know, it seems like he's having a lot of fun at AAA. Uh, six homers in 19 games. He's drawn 17 walks in 19 games. So it seems like he's seeing the ball well. AAA isn't going to teach him anything. You know, he might be a 4A player who comes to the majors, swings over everything, hits a lot of grounders, and he looks like the guy who, uh, you know, had a poor, you know, had a poor start for a valid reason. Also could be that he had the injury in spring training, never got off to, uh, uh, never found a groove. Major League pitching exposed him, and it's worth another look. But I think if they think Cordell can cover center, you can probably mix and match with Tilson and Cordell, get a below average center fielder out there who doesn't embarrass himself or hurt anybody else and maybe go with Palka and see if uh, the second time uh, 
works for him. Now that's the offensive side. From this weekend, Lucas Giolito was great again. He only allowed one run on Sunday over seven innings, striking out eight while only allowing one walk. On the season, Giolito has made seven starts, which has covered 38 innings, and he's got 46 strikeouts to 16 walks. Last year, I think at this time, he had like 34 walks and 26 strikeouts. So this is a complete turnaround for Giolito. His season ERA, Jim, is 3.55. I really didn't think any White Sox starter would have a sub-4 ERA, but here we are. Giolito has been terrific in his last two starts. However, his pitch mixes were very different. Against Cleveland last week, Giolito only threw four breaking pitches. On Sunday against the Blue Jays, he threw 31, according to Baseball Savant. Giolito is getting great results with his changeup, but do you think moving forward, he'll need to continue a more balanced approach that we saw on Sunday rather than just sticking with the fastball changeup against Cleveland last Tuesday? Yeah, I think the Cleveland start was an aberration. It would just happen to be... Yeah, I think every pitcher tries to show the minimum amount of pitches the first time through and then waits for the lineup to make him switch. And with Giolito, he just kept throwing fastballs and changeups. And I think they're waiting for the Indians to keep him honest and make him show something else and never did. So he never showed it to him. And I think, uh, you know, that's kind of how you want to do it. I think ideally pitchers would keep it as simple as they possibly can. I think the Blue Jays were looking for that changeup early. They hit a couple of them into play. They scored a run uh, on them, you know, ripping the ball pretty well. And they forced him to throw the slider, and Giolito answered. He, uh, I think he experimented with both the curveball and slider, tried to dabble between the two of them and figure out which one worked, and the slider was the pitch he could command better and went with that. And I think that's probably the, the pitcher who is most likely to continue uh when you look at giolito's forms you know he came up as a fastball curveball uh pitcher then became fastball nothing pitcher and now he's kind of settled into this fastball changeup pitcher who uh can go to a slider and i think that's probably the guy going forward but given that he's throwing his fastball with uh you know it's got more crispness to it it's uh, a tick or two harder reliably you know 93 to 95 that changeup seems to be uh, playing nicely with the fastball as a combination, and that's probably going to be his bread and butter, and the slider will show up as the pitch needed to keep hitters off balance or to use against right-handers when uh, uh, you know he doesn't feel like he can trust hanging a changeup inside, but as we saw with Toronto, that he didn't really shy away from throwing the changeup against righties either. And Giolito's next start is going to be at home, on the weekend against Toronto. So we'll see on how Giolito does in back-to-back starts facing the same opponent. We'll see if Toronto makes any adjustments. We'll see if Giolito makes any adjustments. And hopefully Lucas Giolito can continue this pace because he's been pitching really well, Jim. Even in his start when he strained his hamstring against the Royals. I mean, that was... I felt like that was going to be a pretty special start from Giolito and obviously got cut short because of injury. But he's been on a roll here. And I know we talked a lot about Giolito on Sox Machine Live, uh, but I'm hoping this continues because this is the the type of good news that we're going to need 
for us White Sox fans on the starting pitching front because I'm expecting bad news as we were supposed to hear about Carlos Rodon's second opinion on his throwing elbow sometime this week. And again, when that news does break, we'll be covering it on Sox Machine, and you can read it on SoxMachine.com. So let's move forward as the Chicago White Sox again. They're 18-21 on the season, just three games below 500. They are seven games back of the Minnesota Twins for first place, when Minnesota's one of the best teams in all of Major League Baseball. Uh, so can't feel too bad about that. Uh, but I do feel much better a year later after recording Rock Bottom on the show about the direction this franchise is going uh, than we're, we were as White Sox fans a year ago after that series against the Chicago Cubs. But coming up next is a six-game homestand for the White Sox, two games against the Indians in a four-game weekend series against the Blue Jays. But before we preview the Indian series, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. With millions of live event tickets and a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way. Search sports, live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you're looking for in one place. In an industry that tends to stagnate, SeatGeek decided to stand out from the crowd. They built the fastest way to find tickets so you can stop searching for the perfect seat and start enjoying your event. And why is SeatGeek better than the rest? A quick look at the App Store shows over 50,000 five-star reviews. How's that for customer satisfaction? It's a better process. SeatGeek pulls together millions of tickets from all over the web. They rate each ticket on a scale of 1 to 10. And finally, SeatGeek displays them on an interactive seat map so you can see what the view looks like from the seats that you're purchasing. SeatGeek breaks down the details. Green dots mean good deals. Red dots, those tickets are overpriced. Stay away from them. And every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets with confidence. And I use SeatGeek all of the time to buy White Sox tickets. I have the app on my phone. I bought eight tickets for this upcoming Saturday game against the Toronto Blue Jays through SeatGeek because I find it to be the by far the fastest and easiest way to find and buy tickets. And SeatGeek is going to give you $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. All you need to do is use our promo code. So download the SeatGeek app and use promo code SOXMACHINE. That's promo code SOXMACHINE for $10 off on your first purchase on SeatGeek. Cleveland wrapped up a series in Oakland as they are currently the inverse of the White Sox record-wise. They are 21 and 18, three games ahead of the Chicago White Sox in the standings. The Indians have a negative nine run differential. So that's not exactly a good sign for Cleveland, as we know from last week and of the six games in the season series so far that their offense is still struggling. The season series between the White Sox and Indians is three and three, and this will be the first time both teams are playing in Chicago. The pitching problems for this series between the White Sox and Indians on Monday at 7.10 p.m. Central Time, it is Shane Bieber against Ronaldo Lopez again. And on Tuesday at 1.10 p.m. Central Time, it is Carlos Carrasco against Manny Benuelos. And Jim, I'm hoping for a split because I am not confident that the White Sox offense will produce against Carlos Carrasco. Um, But what are you looking for in this series? Well, I would hope that with facing a pitcher two times in a row with Bieber and Carrasco, that they'll you know, put up a better fight over the first five innings. I think even you know, Carrasco threw five shutout innings. Bieber was cruising through five, and then they they got him in the sixth. But 
or maybe a sixth and seventh, but you know, it took a while for the offenses to catch on. And I would hope that, you know, facing these guys two times in a row, usually the lineup gets the advantage. And uh, sometimes the White Sox don't, uh, I guess when it comes to Indians pitching, especially Carrasco, they do not uh, abide by, I guess, exposure helping them. So I you know, when it comes to the White Sox, Going forward, being a more credible offense, this is the kind of, I guess, series where you'd expect uh, an improvement the second time around. Yeah, I, I'm I'm hopeful too, but it's eight straight starts that Carlos Carrasco, since the beginning of 2017, has owned the White Sox. It's only eight earned runs over those eight starts. So if the White Sox are going to win a game, I, I'm hoping it is Monday night, and I'm hoping Ronaldo Lopez uh, continues to progress and hopefully that fastball is working for him. If the White Sox can win that game on Monday, then if they lose on Tuesday, I won't feel terrible. But it would be a terrible start to the six-game homestand if they lose both games to Cleveland at home on Monday, Tuesday. But, you know, uh, maybe you're right, Jim. Maybe they can uh, trounce on Carlos Carrasco, much like they did against Corey Kluber earlier in the season. Yeah, Lop- yeah, Lopez is going to be the interesting guy to me. I, th- I think because you know, really, okay, when it comes to you know, we we talk about this, you know, I guess repeat exposure to a pitcher. Uh, you know, Lopez would theoretically have the same problem. You know, having uh, you know the Indians saw him, they they hit him pretty well. I think with Lopez, he's a different pitcher when he's getting that movement on his fastball and and staying on top of it and getting that riding action. The Indians really didn't see that. They were able to fight off a lot of fastballs. The command wasn't great, and then life wasn't great, so that played into it. So I I think maybe if Lopez gets that really sizzling fastball back, uh, maybe that'll be a different enough pitcher to where the Indians were maybe, uh, you know, he's taking it easy on them the first time and then maybe uh, save something for them uh, the next time up. Well, we're going to find out, and we'll be recapping the Cleveland Indians-White Sox series Later this week in Sox Machine Live, hopefully we are talking about continued good performances this week from the White Sox offense, helping support the pitching, especially second time and third time through the order against starters, and hopefully Ronaldo Lopez, and especially Manny Benuelos, uh, can provide really good starts for the White Sox to be able to hold their own against the Indians. But there was plenty of action this past week for the Chicago White Sox down in the minor leagues. And Jim is here to help us get caught up with the minor league report next on the Sox Machine Podcast. A quick word from our sponsor, Wix.com. Let's say you run a small business or thinking about launching one, or you have a big event upcoming like a wedding, or maybe you want to get your voice heard and decide to launch your own blog or podcast. You'll need a website to help launch, and there is no better place to get started than at Wix.com. Over 140 million people use Wix for their website because it's easy to get started and publish for free. You can choose from 500 stunning templates, or if you have some design chops, you can make your own from scratch. With built-in SEO tools, you can get your website found online easily on Google and every site is automatically optimized for any device whether you're looking at it from a PC or mobile device. Wix even has built-in tools like storage, custom domains, custom email addresses, marketing tools, and e-commerce. With a dedicated support team, Wix can help you launch a complex website to help you run your entire business or a simple place for you to share your talents to the world. Whatever you are dreaming of, you'll need a website and Wix can help. 
Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash podcast to get 10% off when you upgrade your site. All right, minor league report time. We'll start up top in Charlotte where Dylan Cease is struggling to get on track, although not because he's doing anything wrong. His last two starts have been cut short by rain, including Saturday, in which he pitched in a steady drizzle for three and two-thirds innings. His numbers haven't been scintillating, but a rainy spring in the eastern half of the country is playing hell with everybody's schedule, and ceases more than most. Daniel Palka is picking up the slugging slack in Zach Collins' absence. He hit a sixth homer for Charlotte on Sunday, and he's only played 19 games. He's hitting 271 with a 414 OBP and 571 slugging percentage, with a whopping 17 walks in 19 games, so his return to AAA isn't teaching him a whole lot. Danny Mendick is also stepping it up, batting 396 and slugging 658 over his first nine games in May, good for an OPS of 11.23. Collins is on the IL due to the concussion protocol, joining Sebi Zavala, who is taking swings in extended spring training as he tries to get past a wrist injury. Getting back to weather, the Barons have had two of their last three games rained out, although that's not to blame for their offensive struggles. Even Luis Robert is running hot and cold, resulting in a 235 average and 333 OBP so far. The good news is that he's only struck out six times in nine games, so the pitching isn't overmatching him. Gavin Sheets is halfway to his 2018 home run total after hitting his third homer of the season on Saturday. He's got a seven-game hitting streak going, during which his average has jumped from 198 to 235. Bernardo Flores pitched six shutout innings for his first quality starts in four tries, but aside from that, all the season-long Barons are right where we left them. Among the new guys, both Zach Birdie and Alec Hansen are struggling to find their footing in the return to double-A. Birdie has issued seven walks on top of six hits over five and two-thirds innings. I watched him pitch on Saturday, and while there weren't any radar gun readings for every pitch, the ones I could see ranged from 93 to 96. Hansen has also had more walks than innings, although it's only three over two right now. The Winston-Salem Dash are in a little bit of a post-Louis Lowell, having lost three straight. Steel Walker hasn't been up to the task of replacing Robert in terms of impact, hitting just 212 with a 273 slugging percentage. He does have a 395 OBP, thanks to 10 walks over 10 games. Nick Madrigal is also in a slump, going 0 for 14 over his last four games, during which he has zero walks and zero strikeouts. His average is down to 250 on the season. At least the dash will be receiving the services of Connor Pilkington. The third-round pick was promoted to Winston-Salem after posting a 1.62 ERA over six starts in Kannapolis, where he struck out 42 batters over 33 innings. Winston-Salem could use an interesting starter, because Lincoln Hensman's second season in the rotation isn't going as smoothly as his first. By and large, all the good news is in Kannapolis. The Intimidators have won four in a row, and it's because their hitting is starting to click. Bryce Bush has been on a roll since Easter, and fellow 19-year-old Lennon Sosa has strung together four consecutive two-hit games just when it looked like he might be overwhelmed by the level. 18th-round pick Romy Gonzalez has also provided a boost, hitting 370 over his first 12 games at A-ball. They also have a fair amount of pitching, even without Pilkington, as Jonathan Stever and Cade McClure have had big games over the last week. The Intimidators are second in the Sally League in strikeouts as a team, and first in strikeout rate. That'll do it for this week's Minor League Report. Now let's answer your questions in P.O. Socks. Annie had an earache on a Saturday of all days. So her mom brought her to Minute Clinic at CVS, where you can see a provider, fill a prescription, and grab essentials like pain relief products, all in one visit. Even on evenings and weekends. You can even see us online with telehealth options. For quality, affordable care on your schedule, visit Minute Clinic at CVS. That's healthier made easier. Services vary by location. See MinuteClinic.com for details.
You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, the fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox. We submitted your questions to us via Twitter, following us uh, at Sox Machine and tweeting your questions there. Also liking our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine and helping support the show and site by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And of course, Jim is here to answer your questions. And our first question, Jim, comes from Mike Locks. And Mike is asking, even though he homered on Sunday, Yonder Alonso has been terrible. Is there any chance when Eloy Jimenez comes back that Alonso will be DFA'd would it be better to give the time to Ryan Cordell, Charlie Tilson, Nikki Domonico, and Daniel Polka anyway? I'd be kind of for it. I didn't have high hopes for Alonzo entering the season, and I think he's even underperformed my my lower expectations. But I wouldn't expect the White Sox to do it, and I can see them holding on to him just because, you know, left-handed bat. He does have, you know, at least when Polka was up there, you could see at least the professionalism in Alonzo's bats, the pitch recognition, the walks. He knew what he was doing when it came to looking at pitches, swinging and making the most out of those pitches, a different matter. But uh, I think there's probably at least a month more of Lonzo to go before a greater move. I would like to see when Jimenez comes back, you know, let the White Sox give him the DH at bats, especially like say if he's facing lefties, um, you know, that'd be a no brainer. But even if they're facing righties. I wouldn't mind seeing Alonzo either ride the bench or give Abreu a day off in the field and let Jimenez come up and take those DH bats just because when we saw him, you know, before the injury, he was, you know, he was kind of aimless in left field. And also at the plate, he looked like he was out of sorts. And I think maybe, you know, giving him a string of night games to where during the day he can work on his defense, you know, do some drills in left field. I think that came up, uh, you know, talking about his defense that, you know, given all the day games early on, they weren't able to, you know, work with him uh, in pregame drills the way that they would uh, with a series of night games. And maybe, you know, in this case, you know, a good solid week of evening start times that they can, you know, use the day to give them some reps in left field and get them used to it. And then, you know, when the game comes around, you put them at DH and just have them, you know, simplify the game, have them focus on his bats. Uh, and and not you know be a danger to himself and everybody else in left field and then you know once the offense starts coming around then you'll run him back out in left field and and hopefully you get a whole better product because we, we've talked about it before I don't think Jimenez was that bad in Charlotte and left not as bad as he's looked in Chicago and I'm hoping that you know as he gets used to the majors and uh, get some success and is able to repeat some success at the plate then maybe the defense will fall into place and he'll at least be. You know, below average, but not the danger that he was to uh, everything out there. Now, this is Yonder Alonso, a common question that I was getting over this weekend and that I hinted at at the beginning of the show when we talked about James McCann and also about Wellington Castillo. Is Castillo a DFA opportunity for the White Sox and maybe an opportunity to call up Zach Collins earlier than we were expected? Well, I think that had been a hotter question if Collins didn't go on the injured list of the concussion protocol. Um, I, I would imagine the same thing. Wait for him to come out off the IL. Wait for Sebi to come off the IL. Get a better idea of where they are as finished products, both of them, or, or how close they are to being finished products, and then pick one, I guess. Uh, you know, And if 
Castillo's you know struggling to hit 200 and is leaking strikes behind the plate and really isn't doing anything of note, then yeah, it might be worth it. Uh, I would think I would maybe limit it to three months in case Collins either gets hurt again or because uh, that came up uh, you know a couple of years ago where just all the catchers got hurt at one point. Then Alfredo Gonzalez came up and really looked uh, uh, like he didn't belong. And I would want the White Sox to, I guess, not be a complete danger of losing all catcher depth in a hurry given the injuries that are in play. But I think maybe by the All-Star break, uh, that might be a more realistic approach. Unless Collins comes back, shows no after effects of the concussion, hits well. Maybe then by mid-June, that might be a more realistic proposition. I mean, it's kind of crazy that we're having this conversation, though, isn't it? Talking about DFA and Wellington Castillo and Yonder Alonso. I mean, if the White Sox gave up on Alonso so quickly here, Jim, I mean, what was the point of that trade? And I get it, yeah, to lure Manny Machado. I th- yeah, I think that was it. I have a hard time believing. Uh, I am super critical of Rick Hahn, maybe more critical of Rick Hahn than most that cover the Chicago White Sox. But I have to imagine there's got to be something else that they were hoping for out of Alonzo, even maybe replacing Jose Abreu for a year if they decide they don't want to bring him back after this season. Well, yeah, I think, you know, that's, they didn't acquire him just to, I guess, soak up all the at bats and be you know, be Machado's friend and 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 get nothing from him on the field. I think they were counting on those professional at bats, the I guess the first half form that made him an All Star. Um, yeah, being a twenty five homer guy with good defense at first base, I think they're hoping for that. I just didn't like the way that he, you know, he's finished the last two years and uh, that his retooled approach looked exploitable. Uh, it seemed like the league adjusted to him and he was a below average first baseman when it came to his bat. That's why I had low expectations for him. I think this is just kind of the worst possible scenario. And, you know, I guess it's maybe uh, a player who is just more or less aging out of it. Uh, before, you know, Brayu is a great hitter. Alonzo was a good hitter. And, you know, as they get... Uh, older and Alonzo being somebody who's more shiftable than Abreu is that his end just might approach faster. Uh, I, I think that that's the case where, you know, <laughs> Alonzo's worst case scenario has popped up. And, you know, if that's the case, then, you know, I think they're better off, uh, you know, just cutting them and uh, whether it's extending Abreu or, or thinking about Collins at first base, there are some options to fill that uh, position internally uh, and, and you know, Alonzo was never really part of the long-term future. So yeah, I, I think, uh, saying, you know, writing him off as Machado's friend, you know, that's, I guess a little bit too cynical, but I think that really was the reason why they acquired him, you know, specifically as that guy, I think they thought he was a major leaguer, but in, you know, using that DH spot to get a backup first baseman, the way they did it with Adam LaRoche and the way they did it with Adam Dunn. I think, uh, you know, that's really mm. the reason why they got that specific player. If that were to come to fruition, that yonder Alonzo gets DFA'd. Is that one of the worst executed trades by Rick Hahn? Not saying the worst. I think we all can agree on what is possibly the worst trade that he made. And I think it's the James Shields trade to with San Diego. But if they DFA'd Alonzo this season because he's ineffective, not good... Is this one of the worst trades Rick Hahn has made? Uh, I don't think so, just because I looked up Alex Call's numbers. He has not yet played. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they might have, uh, it might have cost him nothing to try to, you know, I guess a value added 
um, acquisition for landing another target and, you know, say if his hands were completely tied by Jerry Reinsdorf's unwillingness to spend, uh, maybe it was worth a shot. Um, so I don't think it would be that big of a deal. Uh, it would just be more of a, uh, you know, lost opportunity and maybe just you know, lose some at-bats. Fortunately, I think Daniel Palka started out so poorly that, uh, you know, it didn't really force an issue there and Alonzo is allowed to play through it. But I think, you know, as we see some potential complications, whether it's Jimenez uh, getting his sea legs as a DH before moving back to, out to the outfield, if Palka uh, is back on track, and looks like he's worthy of major league at bats again. If if that gets in his way, then I think it'll be a problem. But for the time being, I think it's worked out with minor complications and really it'll be no harm, no foul. All right. Well, Mike, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. It it does spark some ideas, and I'm sure many White Sox fans have their thoughts as well, not only with Yonder Alonso, but as I brought up with the Wellington Castillo. I mean, there's fat around this 25-man roster that I think is worthwhile for the White Sox to trim. I just have a tough time seeing Rick Hahn actually doing it during the season, more likely after the season. Um, but I've been wrong in the past, and we've seen him do it before, cutting John Danks loose uh, in his final season with the White Sox. Urban Santana. Urban Santana this season as well. Good point, Jim. Uh, so we'll see. If Yonder Alonso doesn't want to be at risk, uh, I would recommend continuing to hit home runs like he did uh, on Sunday, because a sub two batting, a sub two hundred batting average is not going to cut it. I agree with everyone, but the thing about Yonder Alonso, we talked about it when they acquired him. Yonder Alonso plays one good half of baseball. He is an eighty-one game player. He has a tough time getting through all uh, one hundred sixty-two games, being very consistent. He can play at an all-star level for one half. Maybe this is his bad half and his good half. Is coming. I don't know. I'm looking for the silver lining here for Yonder Alonso. That might not be yeah, his. His batted ball stats are okay. Like you know, look at his components, and you know, he's called one of the unluckier hitters uh, in baseball. I just don't quite see it when it comes to where those balls are going and and how uh, shiftable he is. Uh, I'm I'm skeptical. Maybe needs to pick up some hitting tips from James McCann. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, excellent question. Thank you so much for asking it. Our next question comes from Paul, and Paul is asking if Lurie Garcia can stay healthy. That's a big if, Paul. But if Lurie Garcia can stay healthy, is Garcia part of the long-term plan? Uh, I, I don't know if he's part of the long-term plan. I think he's somebody who can be a useful player for a contender. Um, yeah, he's... He's a weird, he's just a kind of a weird player uh, in a lot of good ways. Like he plays all up the middle positions passably. Uh, he's switch hitter. He can steal a base. He, you know, his, his OPS the last you know, year and plus is under 700. So, um, you know, he doesn't make that great of an impact at the plate, yet he's never somebody I really mind seeing at the plate. I guess sometimes it's frustrating when he makes the first pitch out as leadoff man, but I think, you know, as when he comes up to the plate with a runner on second and you need a hit, I, I don't get a sense of dread when he's there. So there is a player underneath, you know, I guess all this rebuild stuff that uh, we might be underappreciating a little bit. Uh, but yeah, given his health record and, and how he tends to get banged up on the field and, uh, you know, whether it's playing, you know, a center field that's not great and, and, and might put himself in, in perilous positions out there or, uh, you know, his base running, he's injured himself, you know, running, sliding at times. 
Uh, I, I, he's got two years before he hits free agency, and I think it's just somebody you go year to year with, and then you see what kind of physical shape he's in at the end of that second year. Um, he's somebody, you know, when you see all these injuries pile up for a player who's speed-based, you know, the, the end could arrive sooner for him, but at the same time, you know, maybe all these injuries limiting his playing time and, and you know, I guess taking some of the miles off his feet, maybe that makes him, you know, in a weird way, it prolongs his uh, ability to stay in the game, even if uh, he doesn't really, he isn't that great at staying in the game in season. Weird guy, but I kind of like him. I'm with you. I mean, he he's a Swiss Army knife. He's that 25th man. I think on a contending team that you see in late pinch running situations or pinch hitting situations that possibly could come through in the clutch for you. But I agree with you, Jim, the more that he starts, I just feel not saying that he's fragile, but the guy sometimes plays with a reckless uh, style of baseball in order to make the play and then just finds himself getting hurt. Like I am one, I'm with you. I'm wondering how much longer he can last uh, in the major leagues as far as uh, his ability to be an everyday starter. But Paul, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Gukas Leagito and Gukas is asking if one month from now, the white Sox are still three games out of a wild card spot. Do you bring up Dylan Cease, Luis Robert, Sebi Zavala, Zach Collins, Alec Hansen, I guess what I'm asking is if you jumpstart the rebuild and start learning who can give the team a jolt. I think Cease would be, assuming Cease can ever get on a regular rotation and not have all his starts shortened by rain and actually get his pitch count up to 100 and and look like he can handle a major league uh, rotation spot. Uh, he seems like the one guy to call up who would be an obvious upgrade. I don't know if I would expect a lot from him. I think I would expect something like Carlos Rodon, where he throws five to six innings where he looks uh, dominant at times, but also they run up his pitch count because his command isn't that great, and they're able to foul him off and fight him off and, I guess, outlast him. That would be my expectations for him. So I guess you know when it comes to the whole idea of a jolt, he might be able to provide a major spot over spot upgrade like over Manny Banuelos. But when it comes to players, I guess, closing the gap between wildcard, um, you know, teams in the wildcard spot, I don't know if there's anybody here who can do that. Luis Roberts, I don't think he's quite ready yet. Um, Zach Collins, I can see him having a hard time in the majors, you know, having an initial rough adjustment period. And it was funny, we were talking about this on Twitter, um, and Nick Schaefer, uh, Baseball Prospectus. You know, he's talking about, you know, the White Sox signing Dallas Keuchel and Craig Kimbrell, that, that Keuchel would be an obvious upgrade over Banuelos, that Kimbrell would fit in the White Sox bullpen very easily. He'd fit in basically every bullpen very easily, but the White Sox, you know, more than most. And whether that would make him a playoff spot, and, you know, my opinion was that, uh, that they would help, and I'm, you know, for it if they sign him, but... At the same time, I don't think they would make all that much of a difference because I think the White Sox need a, some above-average players to make up for the below-average players they have. And players with a long layoff, like Keiko, like Kimbrell, I don't know if you can expect them to show up midseason and be their all-star form. I think you have to expect them being, I don't know, this is me just feeling it, not uh, having anything to point to aside from the very small sample of players who have joined teams midseason, but... You know, when you look at Keuchel and Kimbrell, I expect them being maybe 20% worse than what they've shown, and that knocks them to be above, you know, credible major leaguers, but kind of average. And I think you would need one of these guys showing up to be, like, above average. And I think Eloy would, yeah, if they get him back and 
he hits like he's shown that he can hit and maybe, you know, it takes him a while, but maybe he finds that Juan Soto form. Maybe he's one of those guys that is above average and helps him close the gap, but they would need, I think, at least a couple other ones, especially to withstand injury. And I just don't see anybody internally doing that. And then that's why I think like, you know, when it comes to trying to close the gap and give them a jolt that I don't think this is quite the year for them to make the push. I'm all for them spending money and filling the roster with, you know, more adequate major leaguers. But just when it comes to the on-hand talents, especially on-hand talent to like, say, replace somebody who gets injured, I just don't see anybody having that easy enough a transition to really provide a jolt that I would expect or at least uh, consider more than a flash in the pan. I don't see either Kimbrell or Keuchel signing until after June. That's what, that's what it seems like. At least I think that would be, you would get the draft pick thing out of the way and they would probably get the closest thing to their full financial value over the remainder of the season. And I understand there's a lot of White Sox bloggers that have been writing up, I guess, their arguments on why the White Sox should ignore the second round pick and sign one of these two or in some cases both. But I think the reality is, is that we are at May 13th. The Major League Baseball draft is three weeks away and teams are starting to make plans on how they're going to spend their draft pool money. And to suddenly throw a wrench in the process and say, you know what, forget it. You're not going to have a second round pick. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and sign Dallas Keuchel. I mean, is Keuchel going to be ready in three weeks? I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what he's doing right now uh, as far as to be ready for the season. Um, so I could kind of see where teams right now are looking at Keuchel and Kimbrell and say, you know what? These guys would be like making a big trade in July 31st. So maybe we'll sign them after June, keep our pick, have them go extended spring training, make some starts down in the minor leagues, and then bring them up in July. It'll be like we just made a major acquisition at the trade deadline. That's that's kind of how I see the situation for those two play out. Is that a scenario that will work for the White Sox? I don't know, Gukas. Maybe if the White Sox are still just three games out of a wild card spot. But I still got a feeling that Rick Hahn is going to remain with this plan, remain patient, and not do anything... I don't know, to jeopardize his plan? I don't know how to explain as far as where I'm thinking where Rick Hahn is currently at. I I don't think he's suddenly going to floor it on the gas pedal and start switching in directions if the White Sox are still in contention a month from now. Yeah, I think with the third overall pick, they probably have the money spent in a way. You know, I imagine they have some contingencies, like say if Rutschman falls somehow, if the Orioles get cute. But I think when you're picking that high up, you probably have a good idea of where the money is going, at least like the big dollars. Uh, And and so that's, I guess, would be my concern for the White Sox and the specific thing is like, you know, that maybe it blows up their draft board a little bit. Although, you know, as we've seen with the White Sox draft board, maybe that's not a bad thing to (laughs) be forced into a plan B given the way their first rounders have turned out. But yeah, it's just, uh, I, I don't see the, Payoff quite there for the to to shake the White Sox out of this mode they've committed themselves to, and I can see Keuchel and Kimbrel wanting to go to teams that are you know contending, and I can see teams that are contending just as you said, waiting to treat them as 
deadline acquisitions, even while ahead of the deadline to where maybe that's one, uh, you know, one trade they don't have to make in late July for the single trade deadline. Yeah, that could be another thing, you know, coming into it is, you know, with no August trades and no way for teams to acquire depth um, in August, at least easily. I could see them having more value in that period between June and July to where uh, that's one less move that teams have to make as uh, you know, late July approaches. Well, the White Sox are not on Madison Bumgarner's no trade list. Hmm. Let's do it up. <laughs> yeah, and I think when it comes to you know <laughs> the closeness to the wild card, I think you know one more week of the Indians' offense and the Blue Jays' offense could make it pretty tempting to keep thinking about it, but. They're just, I think, one bad week away from just everybody remembering just how shaky this pitching staff is. And, you know, that, that week with the Astros, I think, might be the uh, reality check that uh, the White Sox end up getting. Yeah, hell week. May 20th to the 26th. Four games at Houston, three games in Minneapolis. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's not going to be a fun week. But it's 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 fun to imagine, Gukas, and thank you so much for your question. And great questions from everybody this week in P.O. Sox. Thank you guys so much for submitting questions. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle on a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again, you could follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine. And also help support the show and site by going to patreon.com slash Sox Machine to sign up. You get additional content uh, weekly, monthly, both writing and from the podcast. So if you really enjoy our work and you want more from us, uh, again, go to patreon.com slash socks machine to sign up. Do we still have pint glasses? Sure do. Awesome. So if you like a socks machine pint glass, there's an opportunity for you to get some socks machine swag. Again, go to patreon.com slash socks machine to sign up. And that will do it for this edition of the socks machine podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the show, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, audioboom.com slash Socks Machine, and wherever you listen to podcasts. The Socks Machine Podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.